Dr. Ethel Tunkohan, an Associate Professor of Politics at York University. This is Academic Aunties. This summer, we've been bringing you conversations that have been inspired by my sabbatical trip to the United Kingdom. A couple of episodes ago, we talked to Dr. Eve Hasekalaf about the casual cruelty that she's experienced in her time in academia. And last episode, we spoke to Yilin Wang and her experiences of intellectual appropriation and theft by the British Museum. This week, I want to look at the larger, quite concerning picture about what is happening in UK academia. For example, since the end of April, the University and College Union in the UK has been on a marking strike to demand fair pay and working conditions that have deteriorated significantly. This is happening in an environment where funding has dramatically decreased, where universities are transforming from institutions of public good to private institutions with executives making enormously generous salaries, and where university professors and staff are increasingly being made to act effectively as border guards, with international students create, quite explicitly, a hostile environment. And I learned a lot about these dynamics when I was talking to this week's guest, Dr. Lucy Maplin. Dr. Maplin is a political sociologist at the University of Sheffield who I met during my research fellowship. In our conversation, she talked about the rise of neoliberalism in British academia, about how bordering practices are taking hold in UK universities, and ways for academics to take back their time. Have a listen. So Lucy, would you like to introduce yourself to our listeners? Yeah, hi. Yep, I'm Lucy Mablin. I'm senior lecturer in sociology. I guess that's associate professor uh, yeah. in the Canadian system. And my work is about the politics of asylum. Thank you so much for inviting me on Academic Aunties. I'm so privileged to be part of your gang. I am so excited about our conversation. So just to get us started, how's it going? I mean, how are you doing since we last talked to each other? Yeah, okay. Uh, We are besieged by this ongoing situation of industrial action in UK universities that's been going on since maybe 2017, at least six years minimum. So the situation we're in the moment is a national marking boycotts, really fraught, difficult time. Many people at each university is responding to it differently. So at Sheffield, Colleagues who have marking are locked out of the university for three weeks with no pay. My partner at another university is on half pay for two months at least, ongoing. Uh, yeah, it's just every year, waves and waves of strikes and uh, marking boycotts and such like. So it's a bit exhausting, really. Every time I talk to friends based in the UK, I keep hearing about industrial action and I keep hearing about other new things that management uh, has decided to enforce in the university. So perhaps for our listeners, we can backtrack a little bit and I can ask what has changed over the years in terms of how universities operate? Yeah, I mean, I think the thing we thought we might talk about is the bordering, right? Which is Mm -hmm. one of the lots of things have happened with probably things you've seen similar in Canada, I'm sure, marketization. Uh, the, in 2010, there was the dramatic increase of fees for university. University yeah. used to be largely public. The dramatic increase in the fees and 
um, general creation of universities, transformation of them from public institutions to private institutions with the vice chancellors at the top paid vast salaries and increasingly precarious workforce of people doing teaching and uh, yeah, all of those things which probably are, are similar to things that have happened in Canada. Um, but I, th I think the thing that maybe is distinct that shocked you when you were at Sheffield and we were talking about it is the the real introduction of the government's bordering regime mm. into the into universities from I think it's about 1998 was the first mm. time there was an act of parliament where changes were made which changed um, particular groups of people their status so especially refugees transformed them into international students which meant they couldn't get um, student finance or have home fee levels uh, later home fee levels but at that time there were no fees for going to university mm -hmm. so there were kind of aspects of borders in in universities but there's been this period since 2012 where there's been just this absolute intensification of the bordering of the universities I think the, the point at which it really came to my attention was in 2012 when I was doing my PhD and there's a university in London called London Metropolitan University, yeah, uh, which is a university that took a lot of international students, but also a very like known in London for having a very diverse um, student body, you know, many diasporic um, communities in London and migrant communities. Um, and they lost their license to offer what are called tier four visas. So basically student visas. There was a whole scandal around it. I think two or three thousand student, uh, international students were told they'd lose their places and the border agency went in to investigate the university and stuff. But that was apparently related to there being these bogus students who were not attending classes enough and were just using their student visa as a way to, um, I don't know, clandestinely infiltrate the UK or whatever the kind of discourse was. But after this thing that seemed shocking, that cascaded a whole load of, of interventions where all the other universities started to panic. You know, this thing that made them loads of money, international students, they would lose their ability to host them. So That's ridiculous. So I remember when we were talking about this over lunch, I was just shocked, right? Because I felt that there are things happening in Canada where you do see kind of an intensification of border regimes within university. I mean, we are scholars of migration, right? So, you know, in terms of my own kind of research, I am hearing about how um, universities are not just using international students as cash cows, but there's also this increased expectation that international student officers who normally would provide kind of pastoral care for international students are facing increased pressure from immigration officers to make sure that the international students they're counseling are there for quote-unquote legitimate reasons, right? And so it's kind of shaping their roles in a new way. So it's extending the border away from just kind of the nation-state border, but onto universities as well. But when he, I heard you kind of share this anecdote that was also within this backdrop of me just kind of having casual chats with people at Sheffield and, and other universities and people saying, no, now we have to have mandatory attendance, right? 
And, you know, they were saying it's not really about wellness checks. Now, this is also an extension of our of the border regimes and inc- and how these have encroached into our jobs. I mean, have you experienced yeah. that as well? Yeah. So that's kind of the second thing. There's this whole scandal around London Met and that crisis there. But at the same time, um, Theresa May, who did later become prime minister, um, but she was home secretary at the time, and she introduced this policy regime that she called the hostile environment. <laughs> and That's that, awful. Um, I know. And the hostile <laughs> environment, it, it, its aim was to create a really hostile environment for, quote unquote, illegal immigrants in the UK. But what this policy regime did was to make life completely unlivable if you don't have the correct status or a visa overstay or have arrived um, undocumented. So it created a situation or introduced a duty where all sorts of people were responsible for being border guards. So landlords had to check that people had the right to live in the UK before they could rent a house. Um, The health service started having to check people's immigration status, social workers having to check people's immigration status. You have to take your children's passports to school when they're like starting school when they're five. All kinds of areas of life which were disconnected from the border regime became legally responsible for checking these things. So in the university... That meant a whole, like the kind of introduction of the hostile environment generally, but then universities have to, gosh, so many things. As employers, they have to check people's passports, but that's not just like when you're starting what we would think of as like a proper new job. That's like a PhD student doing a few hours of admin to help a network or something. Like one of my PhD students had to travel to another city recently to show her passport in person to an administrator, you know, just a secretary in a department somewhere who has to check that she has the right to, she's a UK citizen in fact, but that she is the person on her passport, you know. So it's introducing these checks that's just an employer responsibility it's not actually specific to the university but the things that are specific to the university are yeah the attendance checks so it was around 2012 after the London Met scandal when we suddenly had to have like registers for all our classes and there was a kind of big furore and initially you know people don't want to be doing a register literally no. just to check no. and you know you're there going please sign this register but look it only matters if you're an international student sort of thing you don't want to do that and there was resistance to it so there was a kind of strategically doing it badly type thing but in mm. fact if you don't do that and so we have no record of if a student has been attending a certain amount of hours a week you could put that person at risk of deportation so over time uh, first like first it was registers for attending a class then it's like personal like personal tutoring meetings or phd supervisions so now literally every kind of contact time there's an online system where you have to fill in that you've met and you've seen that person and yeah I was we were talking um when you were here how it's one of those things where something like deeply problematic and insidious starts to 
just be absorbed into this the institution so that it becomes part of normal practices. You know, after a while, new people arrive, early career scholars come up. People don't know that's not what we always did. You might want to resist it, but if you resist it, you risk people being deported. And, and then after a few years, they started to fold it into this discourse of well-being, like student yes. well-being. So that now it's not primarily a like a violent mechanism of surveilling our international students. In fact, no, no, it's just for their welfare. So we know if someone hasn't been attending classes, we can, you know, check they're not having a mental health breakdown or something and like it's just all for the good of looking after the students who we love and care for so much you know that's so. such bullshit like I, I mean know. I can see I the mutation from you know it being an actual way to to ensure that international students are attending classes but now it's becoming folded into kind of university rhetoric of wellness and well-being right and it's just it's so insidious and so kind of Frightening as well, because, you know, you wake up one day and you're like, oh, we're just doing this a standard practice. And you wouldn't have anticipated that in 2012. Right. Mm -hmm. um, so going to the Ph.D. student question or the graduate student question, Ph.D. students don't need to take coursework. Right. So um, what like <laughs> just help me out here. Yeah, I'm just so a little bit perplexed. They do have some things they need to attend, but it's like there's this system there's, at Sheffield, there's an online system called PATS. I don't know what it stands for. And <laughs> they, because staff were not good enough at filling it in, because like literally, you know, the first year I was here, I had 50 personal tutees and then you've got like PhD students and everything. So because I just can't fill in this PAT system every time I see a student individually just not very good at it so I think they pass that burden on to the students in the end so now the PhD students after every meeting have to make sure that they fill in this PATS uh, thing um, to say we met and this is what we really did meet this is what we discussed and then an email comes through to me and I have to okay and confirm that we did meet so it's that way of surveilling them um, but I feel that the students know that it's for immigration monitoring and, you know, we get emails saying there's going to be a monitoring point by the home office. Make sure you've recorded all your, um, all your registers and, Wait, and stuff. What? So. A monitoring what? Can you say? Yeah, so you obviously <laughs> if they, you, so you outsource the border to all these institutions, you have to have a kind of mechanism of punishing them and disciplining them into doing it, don't you? So you have, mon you have the ever-present threat of taking away their license to have international students, which would ruin most universities in the UK. And you have to have like monitoring points so they know they're being surveilled all the time to encourage, I don't know, governmentality. It just baffles me that, I don't know, in a university, I think I mean, maybe I'm being unfair here, right? But in a university system where presumably there's a lot of like critical scholars who are aware of what's going on, who see kind of structural factors at play here, it just it just boggles the mind that it has led to this point. Do you know what I mean? And so, but at the same time, I mean, we started our conversation talking about how the university sector is under attack too. So it's almost like you're fighting all of these competing threats. And it sounds so exhausting to always just be on the lookout for where the threat might come from. Yeah. And I think it's also because it's all been undertaken by this current government that we have. So alongside 
the hostile environment in the in the university being implemented you also have the hostile environment in any every other area of life being introduced and implemented you have like like in 2010 it would be unusual to see a homeless person on the street in the UK now there are just like all of the public services have been systematically defunded by austerity um so there's like homelessness many many social problems the health service has been underfunded university tuition fees have been introduced funding for schools and education uh brexit the total <laughs> ongoing nightmare of brexit uh just so so many horrific things so it's not even like oh there's this bad thing over here let's <laughs> let's resist that and let's say let's kind of try and get academics together there's so many other things where the social fabric things anything that used to exist has ceased to exist and things like food banks didn't exist now food banks are everywhere and many people are involved in community food banks so it's just like every time you're focusing on one thing you turn around and realize some other thing you weren't concentrating on for a few minutes have been utterly destroyed and there's some other thing under threat so i think this is just like one one more horrible thing and you know there are some extremely serious aspects of the of the hostile environment, like the the Windrush scandal, yes, where m thousands of citizens became wrapped up in the hostile environment and identified as illegal immigrants and deported because they arrived with British passports from parts of the Commonwealth and the former empire and couldn't prove the various requirements of, um, you know, didn't have pay slips from 1972 and such like. And, you know, people have been deported to Jamaica who have never lived in Jamaica. It's So they've been uh, also within the hostile environment. There have been so many things to fight in relation to. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think... What's really appalling, too, for me is how new generations of students. So right now I'm just thinking, you know, like people who are 18 who can't remember or who can't imagine a world that that's anything else. Right. Like this has been the reality for the for for, uh, you know, since they were little, they, they can't see a world where universities are free. They can't see a world where you don't have to sign in for every meeting with your tutor. Right. I think one thing that. I mean, not that I'm saying there has to be a glimmer of hope, but one thing that <laughs> struck me in my time at Sheffield was when I sat in on your migration reading group, right? Where mm. you were able to curate the space where we were having conversations about how all of these different um, migration issues. So at that point, you were talking about digital ID cards, right? It was it was in these spaces that we can create moments of dissent and moments of thinking otherwise, right? Mm. And imagining otherwise. And I guess I'm curious to see how have you tried to do that, um, i.e. create these spaces of dissent, create spaces of imagining otherwise in in your own work? I mean, you have this beautiful mm. book co-written with Joe Turner on migration studies and colonialism. Like, what have you tried to do as a researcher, as an educator to 
tell students, to tell the wider public that this doesn't, we don't have to go down this path. Mm, yeah, I mean, I think one part of the answer to that is um, in relation to the reading group and those kinds of spaces. It's like, to me, that's not radical. It's just what our job should be. But mm. I feel like the university tries to keep me busy. Keep, or keep, I don't know if it tries, but keeps me so busy doing nothing. Like all day, I could fill in stupid form. Every time I want to do yes. anything, I have to yes. apply. Apply to spend the money that's my money, yes. allegedly, to spend, oh which has, has been reduced. And so I can spend my whole life busy doing nothing, just total bullshit tasks. And then never have any space to do all the things which were why I got into doing this kind of gig in the first place, which is like just reading and thinking and talking and learning from other people. And I really don't want to become one of those people that never learns or changes their mind or stops reading because I have this perspective that I take. And so I'm never going to take a different perspective or learn or change or grow. So one of the nice things in the past couple of years has or was it? It's just the past year doing this borders reading group with a new group of PhD students that we have. And we have different people come each time and different members of staff. But it's a total gift for me because we just read something and then inevitably uh, we spend a small amount of time talking about the reading. And then it goes off into many topics and themes and ideas. Um, and and insights because many of the students come from all over the world and so you just learn a lot from listening to people and talking I think you just need to keep those spaces because surely that's literally our job <laughs> but yeah migration studies and colonialism that book was really just trying to be an intervention so my work is about understanding British asylum policy in the context of histories of colonialism yeah and often when I talk, especially before I did before the book, before the past few years where decolonizing, whatever we might think of how that's gone in universities before it became a, a kind of umbrella term to start a set of conversations, I would give a talk somewhere. And generally, you know, there would be the kind of hostile older people asking me angry questions but then always there'd be loads of PhD students coming up to me or emailing me saying what what should I read my PhD supervisor doesn't know what I'm talking about like I'm talking about this thing now and I'm saying we can understand it with colonialism which they see as this kind of random history that's over especially mm. in, the, in the UK um, where there's no general education about colonialism or public discussion about it as something that happened at all so just sort of was getting annoyed with people having permission to ignore all this work that mm. exists in the world like it's not like it needs to be invented or we need new new theories how can we possibly think about this there's loads of amazing work so with joe we just thought let's Let's do a book, not for all the people we know who are awesome and already know all of these literatures, but for all those like PhD students who don't know where to start and their supervisor is not being helpful and there's no courses and they were never taught anything about colonialism or those literatures. Let's just 
do a book to take away the excuse of the <laughs> the cross professor. And I think we've had some quite angry reviews to the book from some well-established people. So I feel like that means like, hey, they, they read it. So that means you're doing something right when you're yeah. pissing off people who, you know, are yeah. probably, you know, they probably need to be shaken up. Right. I like it. I mean, I'm going to be assigning it parts of it to my graduate class because uh, I'm heading back uh, from sabbatical, sadly, and I have to start thinking about teaching uh, in the fall. But um, I guess my final question to you, Lucy, so you've spoken a lot about feeling under siege, feeling under the attack. I'm still kind of processing how hostile environment, how that's actually a phrase that applies to different aspects of, of life, that it's not just about higher education. It's not just about tracking international students and the increase, you know, encroachment of bordering regimes and universities, but also in other areas of social policy. And then, you know, I just, I'm kind of still processing that. So I guess this might be a facile question, but is there anything in universities and in higher education in the United Kingdom that still gives you hope? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, I have to say it's not a super hopeful time. Mm. Um, but then I think, and sometimes I wonder, is it a sign of how awful things are that people always seem to constantly be asking me, like, where the hope lies or like every <laughs> every panel I do or whatever there's always a question about the hope and you've got to think of it's like oh yes they're ending asylum in the UK basically and like want to uh, get out of all of the human rights conventions but is there some, something I can <laughs> no, say it's so awful, it's hopeful. Um, <laughs> I think like just trying to be hopeful I think we do we have to continue as though we'll win right like as though a different um future is possible and I think sometimes I, I feel like a lot of things that are happening at the moment are part of a backlash mm. and we're kind of constantly told by politicians in Britain kind of hateful things and divisive things and kind of just relentlessly encouraged to hate each other and be suspicious of each other whether that's kind of in relation to migrants and citizens or about race or class or generations, but I feel like they're so urgently telling us to hate each other that they're probably trying to distract us from something. And in, in the actual living of everyday life, I meet so many amazing, especially young people who are just shaking things up and changing things and think about the world in completely new ways. Like while they might not think that um, borders in the university might not know that that's say very recent it's really not very long ago but that nobody would ever 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 mention colonialism like I can't mm. express how like at, at no point in my entire school education did I learn anything about the British Empire mm. anything that I knew was from like period dramas on tv <laughs> really um yeah it's just hard to express how expunged from the national narrative it's been just like never speak of that sort of thing um whereas now if you were a undergraduate student in the UK I would like challenge you to get through your degree without having um 
or, or just your general life and so social movements that exist and, and such like and not know about that and not have a level of understanding about that so that's a change that's happened and changes are happening all the time aren't they so we just have to kind of see the back like the culture wars is a backlash against a different kind of world that is coming into existence in fact just through people living and being friends and getting married to each other and moving places and so we just have to like remember those things that have been won and just like continue imagining that they can get better and doing what we can in our little corner of the world from the position we occupy absolutely but, it's ironic isn't it i mean it, it it's not quite as bad in Canada. Like sometimes, you know, I talk to to friends in the UK and I'm like, oh my gosh, this is what Canada could be. So we need to watch out, right? But I think what you said with respect to administrative creep, right? Like it's it's ironic that the purpose of our jobs, which prior to becoming a professor, I would I imagined would be to have these critical conversations, to read, to learn, to research, to to share new ideas. That that's becoming increasingly harder for us to do because of all of the bureaucratic, um, you know, things that we have to, to 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 check off our list to do our jobs. Right? It's ironic that that's becoming harder for us to do. But I do think the fact that we're still able to do this, that you're still able to kind of have these conversations, that you're still able to write, uh, you know, my studies and colonialism the colonialism is now part of the everyday conversation in university mm. i think these are seeds of change that we just have to keep kind of nurturing right um so yeah i really like what you said there <laughs> <laughs> yeah i think for sure for sure it's a, uh, and i just constantly remind myself that it's literally my job to read and write and talk to people and learn from them and have conversations because otherwise I would never stop to have a coffee with some with a colleague because I don't have time I don't mm. have time for lunch breaks don't have time for reading groups don't have time to go to seminars so it's like I just constantly trying to tell myself that it's literally my job to do things and the other things are you know the things that like all of the monitoring and the and stuff it's they're like um side tasks that I don't really have time to and I'll get to if I have have time I just had this light bulb moment you're right actually because when I look at my daily schedule a part of me is like well I want to have coffee with this colleague because they're talking about their research but then I'm not going to be able to do the gazillion other administrative things I have to do but you're right like we have to reverse it right the administrative stuff isn't what we're here for it's about nurturing ideas right like you know mm. filing an expense report um or i don't know like signing off on paperwork that you know i can actually just do before i go to bed that's not do you know what i mean like it's not yeah that's yeah. not what's more that's not what's important it's about you know cultivating these ideas and cultivating these spaces so i like but I do like you that know too. do you know what like when you stop doing things like i've just recently maybe in the past year or so, just lost a grip of my email inbox, for example, and all of my tasks, all my many tasks that I have to do. And um, and when you just, you know, because you have that like woman thing where you have to do everything well all the time. So yes. you're like, oh my God, I can't lose a grip on my email inbox. I can't not reply to an email because they might hate me and think I'm a bad person or whatever. So when, but when you actually just start to kind of, neglect these stupid tasks 
because you're busy doing your actual job, like nothing happens. Yes. No one says anything. No one mentions it. It's like you like do something and you ask an, uh, somebody, like you think there's, it's like a part of an administrative task. So you say, uh, and they, but they, uh, I'm trying not to give a specific example from Sheffield to get myself in trouble, but something where you think like, how can this be my job to do, to do this? like find an image for a blog post you forced me to write or something mm -hmm, mm -hmm. when you just don't do it or don't reply or delegate it to someone who you know it's their job like nothing happens it's like but whereas if you stop writing books and presenting and conference and stuff you get in trouble because that's literally your job so i've kind of just recently realized that I feel besieged by these tasks but a lot of them are because they are just stupid they're like superfluous and either the system seems to not notice you just don't fill in their silly spreadsheet about your impact activities or something then like nothing happens no one even it's just honestly it's liberating exactly. it's because it's busy work right whoever whatever mm. like higher up a higher up in the admins chain uh, that that requires faculty members do it doesn't really want to check on whether we're doing it. They're just doing it because they have to report to the management company that they're making us do it, right? So I guess that could be, you know, seeds of rebellion too. You don't have to do all of the tasks that people tell you that you should do because no one's going to check on you, first of all. And secondly, if you, they do, then you can just kind of feign ignorance and then just do it and you don't have to do it well, right? Like, it doesn't have to yeah. be perfect. Um, and I think it's but also kind of... Do you know what? Of, like, hmm. the, the famous professors, they don't do all these things. No. They just, they're strategically bad at part, large parts of their job so that they're not given more tasks. But I think I just spent years trying to be like a good, a, like just a good girl and do yes. all these ta tasks I'm given and complete these tasks but then in the end somebody else becomes the famous professor because they're like that's bullshit I'm not doing it and I'm like busy doing nothing filling in their stupid forms because I don't want to I don't know what be a bad person or something it's and really ironically silly. in us doing all of the administrative tasks and all of us kind of abiding by uh these you know whatever these 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 like norms these expectations we are then bolstering and strengthening neoliberalism's hold on these institutions right so so then fuck it like we're just not going to do it i mean i kind of i kind yeah. of like that yeah it's like this year i had to apply for some money to spend the my departmental research fund which has decreased in recent years rather than increased and so i did the stupid trying not to swear, did the stupid form to say, I want to go to this conference, like why, how will this help the agenda of the university or something? And it's like, it's just a normal thing to do. I don't know what to tell you. It's important I go to conferences. So I did the form and then someone lost the form and asked me to fill it in again. And oh. I just ignored, I totally ignored, I basically deleted all the emails where they kept asking me to do the form again and nothing's happened. And I'm going to the conference next week and like the world didn't end, you know. So, so 
there you go. Maybe our, maybe another, maybe we should just be non-compliant subjects, right? Like maybe we yeah. should keep dragging our feet. And uh, in doing so, we decrease kind of neoliberalism's hold on institutions. I don't know. I kind of, I like where we're going here. <laughs> um, yeah. Thank you so much, Lucy. Uh, this was a great conversation and I really, really learned a lot. Yeah. Thanks for having me. To be perfectly honest, it terrifies me that what we see happening right now in the UK will happen here. That's not to say that universities in Canada and across North America are great environments. Quite the contrary, this podcast is proof of that. And it's not like universities in the UK used to be wonderful either. In so many ways, universities in the UK exist to maintain the power of elites and a rigid class hierarchy. But this is also an environment where not so long ago, tuition used to be free. And certainly, the idea of taking attendance in class and registering meetings just so your students don't get deported was unheard of. So what terrifies me is how insidious and how fast the neoliberalization of academia can happen. But I also really appreciate what Dr. Maplin said at the end of her conversation. There are ways to resist. To preserve your sanity, it's necessary to find those moments of resistance. Ask yourself, is the work we're being asked to do absolutely necessary? Or is it, well, busy work assigned by an administrator with no clue about how universities function? Are there ways for us to opt out of unnecessary work? Or perhaps to even quit quietly? And more importantly, are there opportunities for us to be part of movements for change? Because ultimately, this is about the work to realize a truly emancipatory vision of higher education. One that means everyone, and not just a select few, have access to this space. And that's Academic Antis. We would love to hear what you think. Get in touch with us on Twitter at, at @academicanti. On Mastodon, you can find us at academicantis at maz.to. And yes, we're on threads too, at academicantis. Send us an email anytime at podcast at academicantis.com. And remember to rate and review us on your favorite podcast app. If you want to support this podcast and help us keep these conversations going, please go to academicantis.com slash support. One of the ways you can help out is by becoming a Patreon supporter, which helps us cover our production costs. Today's episode of Academic Antis was hosted by me, Dr. Ethel Tungohan, and produced by myself, Dr. Nisha Nath, and Wayne Chu. Tune in next time when we talk to more Academic Antis. Until then, take care, be kind to yourself, and don't be an asshole.